Good morning, everyone. It's good to be with you. And we come every week to hear the, the Word of God proclaimed, to not just participate with it in worship, but also now to, uh, to receive from God and to listen to uh, what He has to say to us uh, from His Word now. And we've been going through a series of Re- in, in Revelation. And so we find ourselves this morning in Revelation chapter 4. Uh, Revelation is a book of signs, and it is, although it is mysterious in ways, it has a very clear meaning, and it has a very real meaning that can be discerned. And this book of signs is designed then to encourage and to strengthen the church. Uh, It's not just simply to be treated as a crossword puzzle, trying to figure out uh, its various meanings here and there, um, treating it in in a very, almost a sterile sort of way. It's not to be read with a newspaper, trying to uh, discern what, what current events are, are happening and, and, and with what, what signs. But we want to acknowledge that it is a complex book and it does take skill. But nonetheless, this book can be understood. It was written down. It was revealed by God to the Apostle John because it was for a specific purpose for their understanding. Uh, this book, if you think about it, was Read, first read aloud uh, to its original audience. Uh, it was not, uh, when it was g- first given to the, the, the churches, it wasn't brought to them in a book form for, so that everyone could have and, and read it and study it on the, on, for, for their own say, sake. It was given to them as a corporate whole, and it was read to them. Now, that's a lot different reading it than it is to sit and study and parse everything out. And although there is, there is a time for that, we can't miss the fact that it was intended to be read aloud to them in one sitting and that it was intended then for the audience, for the people listening to understand its basic message and overall meaning there. It can be discerned. Yes, it is complex, but its meaning though at the same time is there for us. And we're going to look at that this morning. It was there to encourage the church in times of trials and tribulations. And so as uh, we do want to recognize that it, is, it does take skill uh, to understand it. And so let's first come now to the Lord and let's pray uh, and ask for the Spirit's blessing upon us uh, with the, the reading and the preaching of, of this, this word. Lord, we are thankful that we have uh, passages like this, uh, books like this, uh, that are mysterious but yet also it's the mystery of it that also is meant to inspire our wonder and our awe of you. And so, Lord, as we come to, to your word here, we are in need of your spirit to be at work in us, to make us hearers. We are in need of your spirit to be changing our hearts and changing our whole selves. So please transform us. And let us remember that this is the word from you. This is the revelation of Jesus Christ. And let us not forget that. And let us see him clearly this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Let me read Revelation chapter 4. This is God's word. After this, I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. 
At once I was in the spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones. And seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumbles and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Amen. Now, kids, now, youth, teens, I have a question for you. What do your parents do all day at work? Probably a fair question. What do your parents do when they're at work all day? Maybe you know where it is they work. Maybe you know what their job is. But do you ever wonder what it is that they actually do when they're away? I used to wonder that when I was a kid. I knew that my dad worked for the power company. I knew that he left every morning with a briefcase in hand and that he sat at a, com at a computer all day and he drank a lot of coffee. Uh, I even knew his job title. But I couldn't actually tell you what he really did all day at work. Now some of you might have a better idea now of what your parents do at work because they might be working from home. Uh, they sit at, the, at a computer, but as they're there looking at their Zoom meeting or whatever else they're doing, do you really know what it is that they're doing there? You might conceptually know what it is that they do. They look at spreadsheets, they have meetings, they work with tools, they teach students. But there can still be elements where you really don't know what it is what they're doing or why it's important or how it fits into a bigger picture. Sometimes we think about God this way. We know that he is the creator and Lord of the universe. We know that he is seated and throned above all. But like the child who knows that her parents go to work, we know all that in theory. But when it comes to really knowing what he's up to, what he's doing as the Lord and throned over all, sometimes we can be a little fuzzy on that. What's he doing on his throne? How's he ruling all things? What's he really doing up there in the heavenly realities? We affirm that in concept, but do we really know what that means? 
Well, God gives John a glimpse of what he is up to here in the heavenly throne room. Verse 1 says that there is a door that was opened in heaven. And Jesus, the source of this revelation to John, and also its subject, bids John to come up here so that he can show him what's really happening. It's like kids, for your parents at work, they aren't just sitting at a computer. They're developing ideas and products that will improve and enhance our, our quality of life. They aren't just swinging a hammer. They're creating a home for a family to grow and to love each other in. They aren't just teaching students, they're training up the next generation. And similarly then, this vision puts a greater perspective upon the bare truth of just simply saying that God reigns over all things. Jesus opens John eyes to a, John's eyes to a clearer reality of what he's doing. And this is what John sees. The very first thing that John sees, that he beholds, that, pro- that, that overcomes him as he walks through that heavenly door into the heavenly realities is the throne of God and the beautiful glory of the one who's seated upon it and upholding everything. There is no other way that he can describe God than by a dazzling array of lights and colors. Jasper and carnelian, precious stones of various hues. The throne surrounded by a rainbow shining its, its array of colors as brightly as it does when in contrast when it pierces the dark clouds after a rainstorm. Yet just to throw us off a little bit so that we aren't too comfortable, the rainbow also looks emerald green in its hue. And its heavenly courtroom here, God's heavenly courtroom is surrounded by smaller thrones. There's a sea of glass, strange winged creatures. It's not just visual, But it's a multi-sensory experience also. Sounds of thunder and rumblings combined with the songs of praises and the shouts of joy. Seeing the light and even feeling the heat from the seven torches of fire, which is is here it says the spirit, the seven seven spirits of God. Or you think about the, the number seven in Revelation is a number of perfection. It is the perfect full presence of the spirit of God. And this brilliant yet strange scene portrays vividly not only who God is, but what he's doing even now as he sits upon his throne. Presiding sovereignly over everything that fills time and space just as he has from eternity. Even though this is a bizarre picture, there is a real objective truth about God that both the original readers and us can learn from this. This is a a vision that portrays the invisible heavenly reality. It is truly objective in the truth that it has. Yet it's at the same time revealed in a way that inspires awe to us. And that's important because we need both. We need real objective truth. But a truth that bowls us over in deep wonder. And if we don't then, as God's people, regard him in this sort of way, then how can we expect anyone else to see God with the same sort of wonder? With the sense of awe that he fully deserves. If we want others to see him as beautiful and with awe, then we must first regard him in a way that truly moves us. And visions like this, and as strange as they are, frame God as he is truly known in ways then that make our Our souls soar 
And if there's any real hope to be derived from him as Revelation assumes that there is, then your view of God will lead you into your corresponding view of what hope is. Your view of God will lead you into your corresponding view of hope. If you take a speculative view of God that doesn't land on any real truth about him, then your hope is merely speculative and with no certainty. If you understand God as nothing more than a list of impersonal propositions, then your hope is going to be simply theoretical. If your view of God is that he's aloof or that he allows you to push him to the periphery of your life, then that will lead you to a hope that you actually can't have any confidence in. But this, re, this revelation given to John is precisely for that reason, to give the church hope amid her troubles. And that hope, a very real hope intended to encourage our hearts and to enliven our faith, is grounded upon God as he truly is. And so from this vision, let's look at who he is. First, we see that he's eternal. God is eternal. It's proclaimed in the songs of the creatures and of the elders that we have. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. And even as the elders bow down, it, re it repeats two times, that he lives forever and ever. He is the pre-existent one before all things as their creator. His existence does not change. He is eternally the same as he always has been and as he always will be. This vision is even looking ahead to God's rule, or it's looking at, at God's rule through a lens that gives us a sort of eternal perspective, at least as best in the way that we can comprehend See, around his throne, there sit 24 thrones with 24 elders seated upon them. And all of these elders are clothed in white garments and have golden crowns upon their heads. And these elders represent the entire church from beginning to end. God's people from Old Testament to New Testament. The, from the earliest beginnings of his covenant of grace until the very end, which is still to come. And even though this is taking place at a moment in time, from John's perspective there, through the lens of God's perspective, here is the church arrayed around him. And they are already clothed in victory. They are already bearing the righteous robes of Jesus and crowned with his glory. This representation of the church from God's perspective includes Noah, Abraham, Rahab. It fast forwards to Mary, to Peter, to the Ethiopian eunuch. It comes to us, the entire church around the world, and even the generations to come. Your children's children's children are included in this. Yet God, though, from his eternal perspective, sees them all as already his. All of them from first to last whose sins were atoned for by the blood of the Son of God on the cross. And they are all clothed in his righteous robes. Because the Son, the blood of the Son of God who created time itself is sufficient and is powerful enough to cover all his own who live inside of time. And even the sea of glass before the throne alludes to this idea. Revelation was written using symbols from the Old Testament. And one symbol in the Old Testament was of the sea. Now we think of the sea and what comes to mind. Uh, recreation, 
the thrill of adventure, maybe some, some time of lounging on the beach. Maybe some of you right now are wishing for that salty, that salty smell of the, of the cool air on this kind of warm, smoky day right now. But what if you, though, were in the, in the water and the waves and you couldn't swim? What if you had just watched the movie Jaws and you're bobbing nervously on the waves waiting for who knows what unseen terrors and evils are lurking beneath waiting to grab you? See, that's more of the mindset for the, these Old Testament Jews. They weren't known as a great seafaring people across the Mediterranean. So the churning waters as a sign in the Old Testament were, were a sign of the, the, all the unknowns that were lurking beneath the surface of the waves. And a, a symbol of terror and chaos to them. And yet here's the sea. A sign of uncertainty. A sign of chaos before God's throne. And what is it? It's calm. Even to the point of being like glass. See, very real turmoil presently exists in the world. But from God's eternal perspective, it's already been quelled and quieted into tranquility. So the God who is the God who was, the God who is to come, the God who lives and reigns forever and ever, the eternal one, has written the script of the world from before time began. And he stands outside of time and he views everything in ways that we can't even begin to comprehend. Like a writer who knows how his story will end before he ever puts his pen to paper, even before time began, he had already written the script and it was as good as completed, even though it hadn't yet come to pass in real time and space history. And God looks at every part of it on a completely different plane. In fact, even describing it as a different plane is probably a poor description. Our experiences of, of things is, that, is as they come to pass right now. But God looks upon every moment everywhere as reality, in a sense, even before creation. The song in verse 11, at the end of it, says, For you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Even before God spoke all things into existence, they were already in his mind so that, in a way, they had already existed, or they already were, and from his standpoint. That doesn't only apply to the beginning. That is equally valid for the end. There is an assurance of hope and victory for the church already because God has ordained its victory from eternity past. The whole church is already clothed in Christ and crowned victors. The sea of earth's turmoil is being calmed is the reality that is already written, though we may not experience it now. But later in Revelation, uh, it refers to those whose names were already written in the book of life from before the foundation of the world. Ephesians 1, 3, and 4 reminds us that we were chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. We were already in Christ in some wondrous, mysterious way before creation. Romans 8 speaks of those who are foreknown by God to be already justified, sanctified, and glorified in a way that speaks of them as being accomplished realities, even though where we stand on the timeline isn't quite there yet. See, this is the eternal reality for you in Jesus. The eternal God has eternally known you, seen you, and assured you of the final hope and life in his son. That it's something that has been sealed in time 
And it's how he looks at the church, and, it look, and it's how he looks at you right now. There's nothing and there's no one that can take that away. There's nothing that can change that script. There is no circumstance that you face where the eternal God will not bring you through to resurrection and victory. Second thing that we see about God, though, here, God on his throne, is that he is also the Lord of history. In a way, this overlaps some with God's uh, eternal nature. But this vision also reveals that he is the center of all history, that he is moving everything forward with his purposes in mind. Consider for a moment how the, the throne room is arranged. At the center is God's throne, with all these other 24 thrones surrounding it like a great ring. And there's the four living creatures with faces of different animals or other creatures surrounding the great throne, one on each side. And if the four or the 24 elders are representative of the entire church, as we said, then these four living creatures are representative of all of creation. Because each creature listed there was considered in the ancient world to be greatest among their class of creatures. You had the greatest of the animals in, in, the, in the wild, which is the lion, the greatest of the domesticated uh, animals, the strong ox, the greatest soaring bird was the eagle, and then the wisest and overall there was, was man. And so, amid all the thunder and, and songs, amid all the lightnings and rumblings, God is at the center of it all upon his throne. The living creatures surrounding him testify to his centrality and his lordship over all creation and everything that fills it. But then the elders and the sea of glass all the results of his redeeming story show that he's also moving all of history toward that triumphant end goal that he's already written. All history is God-centric. He is Lord over time and history. And all time and history has meaning that is found in him. If he is at the center, then it must have meaning. Because God works and acts with purpose. History isn't just one thing aimlessly going after another, a wandering around trying to find the plot as it goes. From the very beginning when God created space and time, he put forth, in fact, he even designed all history to move forward to the specific goal that he had written, stilling the turmoil of the seas of the world and the redemption of all things, doing it all for his glory. See, it's not the meaning that you create for yourself. It's the meaning that God intends. And even in the times of deepest darkness or confusion, God still sits enthroned over all of history. And he is moving it forward in the exact way that he has determined from eternity towards the, his purposes of both his and the church's victory and glory. And that doesn't mean that we're able to figure out the significance of individual events or moments in time. More often than not, when we try, we, we fail in doing so. It's not the case. How would we expect, how could we even possibly expect even, to figure out the significance of something that happens when we don't even come close to having the perspective or the mind of God? We are reaching into the unknown when we try to play interpreter of events. We don't know what we're getting into. The finite cannot step and interpret the infinite. All we know 
and all that we can trust with certainty is what God has revealed to us. That he's God, he's revealed his character and that it is good, and that he has an end, that he is the predetermined and he is working all things for that goal. No, our role isn't to figure out the significance of events. Our role is to trust that God knows what he's doing. And that's hard sometimes. Even amid times of great difficulty and turmoil that all of us go through at times, there are seasons and moments, perhaps even extended seasons, where, we, where it seems that the clouds of darkness are coming in and we don't know where God is in those moments. Where are we supposed to have confidence that, then? This is it. Romans 8 also says, He who did not spare his own son for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Friends, brothers and sisters, the token of God's faithfulness, even in darkness, even when it seems that chaos rules the day, is the token of his faithfulness in those times is by giving us Jesus. It's because he has given us his very son that we can have hope that he will bring all things to fruition for our good and for, our glo- and for his glory and ultimately see us through to the end. If he would do something like that, giving his very son to be humbled and abased, going to the cross, even his whole life taking on humanity, if he would do that, how will he not also then bring us to the end? What more could he do for us? If he would do that for us, friends, then he is someone to be trusted in times of clarity and in our times of deep confusion. The third, though, we also see that God is holy. God's holy. At its root, the word holy means to be set apart. Holy gets that otherness. A part of God's holiness refers to his moral aspects and his purity. But even that's couched in a way that sets him apart from the rest of his creation. Because even at the heart of his burning purity that tolerates no defilement in his presence is the absolute sense of otherness from all other things. And it's ultimately because God is creator is that he is holy. And that's why he is set apart from his creation. Now if we consider God's holiness in terms of his otherness, his set apart character then the scene happening around God's throne makes one thing very clear. This is a holy God. This is someone who is quite other and distinct from us. God's description is only given to us in a display of shining lights and colors. His throne issues forth lightning and earth-shaking rumbles. The presence of God's spirit in in its fullness is manifest there. But especially, though, we see it with these bizarre four living creatures. All these four creatures, again, representative of all creation, continually, though, offers up their praise. It says day and night to the one seated on the throne. All creation, everything in the world, all of it testifies to the grandeur of God. Everything from the largest to the smallest. And as our song says, that includes his holiness that they sing to his set-apartness, how different he is from us for designing and for bringing all things into existence. As you stand before an ancient tree, as you watch the muscles of a horse ripple, as you witness childbirth, isn't there something that cries out that this is a hollowed moment, 
and that there is a holy God who stands behind it all. See, the difference that God has, his difference there is something that is to be celebrated. Because what hope is there for us if God's pretty much like us? Or, someone, or even someone that we can mostly comprehend. I mean, for years, people have tried to redefine God. Lots of people don't have an issue with God, but it's part of his holy otherness in his character that has rubbed them the wrong way. It hasn't seemed very compatible to the ways that they're accustomed to thinking about God and themselves and the world. So they've thought to make him a little less holy and pull him down from his throne to make him instead a little more palatable a little less other, and a little more relatable. And curiously enough, all of these redefined views of God, every single one of them has one thing in common. In taking away from God's holiness and distinctness, they all look remarkably similar to the person who first changed him. And for a culture then that celebrates difference, we noticeably don't do this with God. We want to make him in in our own image. We want to make him like us. But really, is there any hope if God is like us? Because any hope in him, if he is like us, will reflect the hope that we as people want to affect for ourselves. To bring about for our own vision for the world. In our own strength. And that ultimately makes God as powerless as we are. And there is nothing that he can really do for you or for me that will rescue us from our situations. No, if there's to be any hope in this world, and if there's to be any hope for people like you and me, we need the holy God who is different from us. The God who knows the world so comprehensively because he created it and he sits enthroned over it and he knows the depths of how ruined it has become so that only he can fully rescue and redeem it. The God who is so other in his intolerance for sin and evil, even when we fail to see it, even when we close our eyes to ignore it, this God is so holy in that intolerance of evil that he will deal with it as it fully deserves. It's ultimately because of God's otherness that he would then save sinners and he would give hope to people who don't deserve it in the very least. Let's not point the finger at others in pride who want to redefine God. Because every word that we speak, every thought that we have, every deed that we do, all of them proclaim what we really think about God in that very moment. Woe is me, says the prophet Isaiah, when he is brought before God's holy presence in a scene that is remarkably similar to John's. He says, woe is me, for I am undone, for I am a man of unclean lips. But God, in his mercy and grace, that is entirely distinct from us, would bridge the gap of his holiness to us through his son. It's the cross that reveals God's holiness, where his intolerance for our sinfulness was shown to remove all of our defilements and to make us clean. And it's Jesus' righteousness, as he was the one who was mindful of his father's holiness at every moment in his life. That righteousness was given to us by faith so that we then bear perfect holiness, but not that comes from ourselves. That's how these 24 elders then can sit around the throne of God in his very presence because they are clothed in the perfectly white robes of Jesus' righteousness. 
And even as redeemed people then, though, as we sit in God's presence, wearing his righteousness, the righteousness of Jesus, God's holiness doesn't mean that we can approach him flippantly or in a careless manner. He tells us to come before him in, in worship and in prayer. It's what we're doing this morning. We are, in a way, in his presence here. And there's a gladness and a joy to that. Because even the seemingly insignificant have a place to dwell before him. But if God is truly holy and truly other from us, then we ought never to be overly familiar or careless in coming to him. Even John here. John knew Jesus intimately. John was one of his closest disciples. He describes as the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who laid his head on his breast even at the Last Supper. But when John sees his beloved Jesus again in effulgent, radiant glory at the beginning of Revelation in chapter 1, he falls down at his feet as if dead. We come as the church arrayed in splendor and crowned in glory. We come in joy and song. We come with gratitude and thanks. And we come before his throne freely with the privileges of sons and daughters. But we also come mindful of who God is. And that our moments with him are also hallowed times. Last, we see that God is deserving of praise. You can't ignore these incredible songs of praise. It's these songs that, that frame the scene, almost like, or almost like chapter markers moving forward in, in this vision. Why do we sing? We sing because we're moved. We sing because it's a response to beauty and grandeur because we're overcome with awe. Poets write, their, write when their affections are moved. Artists create when they're inspired. It's part of being human. When we're moved by what we see as truly wondrous and good and holy, we praise. It's no wonder that so many of the great doxologies of the Bible come after explanations of or eyewitness accounts of God's works and his being after God leads his people through the, the, the Red Sea and he rescues them from, from certain doom from the advancing Egyptian armies, Miriam, Moses' sister, picks up a tambourine and leads Israel in a victory song exalting the Lord. Paul, after wrapping up 11 chapters in Romans relating to the grandeur and glory and the God-centeredness of salvation, and he bursts into him, oh, the depths of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. And we, the church of Christ, represented by the 24 elders, are overcome in deep awe at God's holiness and of his marvelous grace that is shown to us in Jesus. And we bow ourselves down, dressed in his perfect robes of righteousness that entitles us to gain entrance and to dwell into that holy place of God. We take the golden crowns of glory from our heads, the glory with Jesus, with whom we are already co-seated and co-reign in glory even now. We take those from our heads and cast them at the feet of the master because that glory never belonged to us in the first place. This can only come, this sort of worship can only come through awe of God and awe of him. A baffling, mind-boggling awe is that this holy God, the one who is on the eternal throne, the Lord of history and the just judge of all the earth would even crown us graciously with the glory of his son, 
who bound himself tightly to us. So what is God doing right now in the heavenly places? He's not just sitting on his throne. He is sovereignly overseeing all things, all creation, all history, and bringing it to the end goal that he wrote from eternity past. And he wants you to know this personally, which is why he opened the door to his throne room in the first place. So that in every moment of your life, in the best times, in the worst times, you would know hope and comfort that comes only from this God. And to ultimately then fall at his feet in worship. Let's do that now. Let's fall before the feet of God in prayer. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Lord, we confess your deep holiness in ways that we cannot comprehend. We confess and are in awe of your eternal character, again, in ways that we cannot and will never be able to comprehend. Lord, we thank you and we praise you for your character, for your being, of who you always have been. And we fall down, just like the elders, and cast our crowns, the crowns of, of glory that are already ours in Jesus. We lay them at your feet. And we acknowledge that you are Lord and Master. We need eyes, though, to see this, this reality. But we need minds that are reminded of this daily. That even though you may lie hidden from our views, either by our own ignorance or by the darkness or even by our own proneness to, to be distracted, focus us yet again that this is who you are in every moment of time. That you are the eternal Lord sitting ab above all. For all those times that we have had or uh, a poor view of you. All those times that we've neglected you in these ways. Forgive us of all of the poor views that we've had of you. And instead, would you remind us of this vision. And let us regard and speak of you with wonder so that others, our neighbors, the nations, our friends, each other would know and be reminded of the awe and the glory that you alone have. Forgive us for the ways that we have spoken that are inadequate to express that. Thank you now that as we come to your table, that this is yet another token of your holiness and your goodness that you have for us. As we come and we celebrate the lamb who was slain, the one who was slain from before the foundations of the world. In Jesus' name, amen.